This is a uh, new podcast, the first first edition, first time we're doing it, uh, devoted to legal cannabis and other matters. Today we have a, uh, as our extraordinarily enriching and informative special guest a gentle person named Chris Hickok. Um, uh, joining us on this podcast, this is myself, Paul Michael Newman, also Renee Nahum, who, among other things, deserves, I think, some congratulations that she is the applicant and applicant uh, for something that's made the news, uh, West Hollywood approving uh, a cannabis cafe. The uh, build is the first of its kind in the United States, and that just got its business permit a couple of days ago uh, yeah, from on, when we were recording. On, on the 16th, yeah. Tuesday. 16th of what month? July. Are we July. July. Awesome. Congrats. Um, that's awesome. <laughs> So, and we have a, a silent partner. May I give her name? <laughs> Susan O'Leary. I, I, uh, she, unless we manage to coax her to speak, she'll be quiet. But we want her to speak. But she's uh, a key uh, person associated with the Brownie Mary Democratic Club, state of California. But our special guest is Chris Hickok, and uh, we're going to uh, cover some of the ground of what he does. Welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, let's just start by asking you uh, maybe to briefly tell us some of the things you're, you're doing, what you do. I do also want to find out more about your background, which is really interesting, uh, your life story. But uh, can you tell us about what you do in terms of legal cannabis? Yeah, so I help businesses from start to finish. I mean, there's no finish at this point yet, but essentially starting in the cannabis market of getting a license from the local level to the state level um you know a lot of my clients are very new to this regulatory scheme in that they grew up you know growing uh, in their garages manufacturing in you know warehouses you know under the watchful eye of really no one um you know they had this quasi medical defense from you know essentially 1996 up until january 9th of this year um that they've been operating and you know that that aspect is so much different than when you in Colorado or Washington where you know they flipped the switch on and said okay now you're legal now we can start running whereas in California it's just like we've had this very loose regulation of you know you operate as a collective for the benefit of your patient members and you know it's none of it made any sense until you had nowhere to show what you were doing until you showed up in the court of law and you know that's not a place that you want to be so you know it's helping these companies transition from this un, semi-unregulated area to a very highly regulated area that requires, you know, constant compliance, track and trace, you know, following your money, paying your taxes, doing all that, um, and just trying to teach them and educate them anything from basic compliance about the cannabis regulations, um, which expands to more than just what the state offers. I mean, there's employment regulations, there's product liability issues, there are building code you know, regulations. So um, it's a lot more than just cannabis specific. Um, it's just general business. Um, and on top of that, too, just forming companies and understanding what corporate formalities are and what it means to have a percentage of a company and what do you do with it and how that works. How do you have board members and investors and dealing with all of that? So it's in my mind, it's a lot of teaching. It's you know, sitting down. It's not you know, like a lot of other lawyers. They have clientele that 
you know, have multiple businesses have been through this a hundred times and, you know, seen a thousand operating agreements, but all these clients are, it's literally going line by line, trying to explain them and educate them so that when they're in a room, they don't always need to have a consultant or a lawyer like to teach them everything they need to, they need to start educating themselves. And so that's, that's where I kind of come in. And, and you've used the key word a couple of times of lawyer and lawyers. And I didn't actually mention this, but you're an attorney at law, Correct, I which I assume is clear to, to the listeners. Uh, and you have an office, maybe more than one, but you're, um, we're in an office in Sherman Oaks in mm-hmm. the city of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you, how long have you been working on the legal ramifications and aspects and challenges associated with cannabis? So I graduated law school in 2016. Um, I took the bar in 2016. And, you know, the week after I took the bar, I had a friend who owns a company called Alien Labs, um, Teddy and Tyler. And they, um, you know, recognized the change in the market and were like, hey, we're going to need a lawyer. Can you come help us? And 2016, mind you, was before Prop 64 passed. Prop 64 passed in November. Um, So we were still in this quasi-medical world. And so I started doing some research. And I'm like, you know, there's federal prohibitions. The state has this weird collective model, which is legal, but it's not. Um, so I had no idea where to go. So I Googled the best marijuana attorney in California. And then my boss, Eric Shevin, had popped up. And I just shot him an email saying, hey, I was interested. And you know, I've been working here ever since. And Prop 64, in a sentence, you would define as being, for the listeners who don't know. Uh, well, that's a Yuma, the Adult Use of Medical uh, of Adult Use of Marijuana Act. Um, but Prop 64 was voted in by the constituents, you know, all of us voting on it. Um, but before that, in 2015, there was a different law called MRSA, which was the Medicinal Act. And that allowed for regulation of medicinal products um, come. So there's an interesting timeline. So we voted on it in November. And then in June of 2017, Governor Brown signed a merger bill, which merged the medicinal laws with uh, the the adult use laws into what is now called Malkurst, the Medicinal Adult Use of Cannabis Regulation and Safety Act. Since most of the um, jurisdictions, most of the cities in California voted pretty much overwhelmingly for Prop 64, but Prop 64 also gave each municipality the ability to not have legal cannabis. Mm-hmm. Are you working with any of those jurisdictions to try to get them to open up is I've tried. I mean, I, so I, I grew up in Santa Clarita and I, I was there for those meetings and I talked to some city council members to try and get them to under, and this was last February. So just when it, it initially became legal. Um, and you know, most city councils, I mean, they kind of have their mind made up for the most part. I mean, obviously people who show up and present their ideas and push for it um for whatever reason santa clarita is just is i think on the more conservative side um they're an interesting if you if you google bob keller of santa clarita there's actually a funny video i mean it's maybe it's not funny but um it's on youtube and it's i guess a commercial by him and he and he's walking holding a shotgun and he says if i've told you once i've told you a thousand times there'll be no smoking dope in santa clarita and then he like pumps his shotgun um, so, you know, I remember going to the the meeting and, you know, making my case that if you do not regulate it, I mean, you're really opening yourself up to an illicit market, market because, one, the state will not give you any funds that it earns from tax revenue to help you combat the black market. So if you just had distribution or cultivation somewhere off in, you know, your, your warehouse district um, – you know, at least you would get some sort of revenue from the state. Um, they didn't really 
take my argument for anything. And, you know, they brought in police officers who made this case of like, oh, we just arrested this woman who was pregnant and she was high and we got her for a DUI. You know, just things that happen, you know, regardless if it's legal or not. Um, kind of scare tactics. Um, and they eventually voted against it. But um, that is, as you brought up, you know, that's the starting point is it's, it's a grassroots. It's starting from the local authorization mm-hmm. and, and getting your city council to, you know, understand that you are for it. Um, and there was a recent law that was trying to get passed. It has since been held over that they were trying to force every local municipality to give out licenses. I want to say on a three to one ratio, maybe it was four to one. Right. So for every four liquor licenses they gave out, they had to give out one cannabis retail license, um, which makes sense. Because, I mean, I, one of the arguments I made in Santa Clarita was, you know, driving to the city council. There was over 30 places I could have stopped and bought right. alcohol, tobacco that are open, have signs, everything. Um so it's it's a unique, uh... and and to be clear, uh, while at least some of us, maybe all of us at this around this table, uh, feel that uh, it's important that jurisdictions, when they uh, when they actually embark on legalizing or allowing uh, purchasing or growing or what have you. Uh, that the decisions be made in a sensitive and sensible way that takes into account community interests, fully takes into account community interests. Um, and that really is something that, that warrants thought and public input and all kinds of uh, discussion. Uh, bad laws lead to maybe lawyers like this, but litigation, and sometimes nothing gets done and it gets messier and messier. And so things should be done correctly. If they're to be done, they should be undertaken in in a smart way that takes into account community interests. That said, uh, when a community, when a city, for example, doesn't allow uh, the legal activity to occur in a well-regulated and monitored and enforced and fair way, uh, then that does open the door to all kinds of illegal activity, which tends to thrive in in such settings. And furthermore, the product, whether it's back in the old days of, I guess, bootleg liquor, and now with, with uh, anything else, it means that it's not necessarily, whether it's organic or tracked, and they, people don't know if it's real, if there are pesticides, it becomes dangerous. Mm-hmm. So the, those that don't allow legal product really open the door, leave the door wide open to illegal product that can actually be particularly hazardous to people. And that's another reason why jurisdictions should take very seriously the, uh, the, 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 the kinds of decisions they, they make and not just refer to a reefer madness uh, mm-hmm. sort of uh, uh, propagandistic uh, attitude about uh, cannabis. You know, what's interesting about the legal landscape too is because like, I, I was here before you know the full legalization and with Prop sixty four passed, what it one of the great things it did was so November I want to say twelfth the day before you know looking on the regulations looking on the criminal laws it was a felony to grow cannabis literally the next day when we voted it in those laws had already changed that said it is now a misdemeanor. So with that change, it essentially turned most cannabis crimes into a misdemeanor. And so you had, you created a system where you had people who were fine with getting felonies for 20 plus years, you know, still growing for their patients and, you know, potentially facing felony 10 years in prison, you know, a serious crime to now saying, Hey, it's, slap on I mean misdemeanor for me would be harmful but you know it's a slap on the wrist compared to what it was and so you know it's it's almost created this bigger incentive for these illicit growers to just keep growing because now typically what happens if the police do come in 
and you know there aren't proof of sales across state lines, proof of sales of children, illegal guns, gang activity, things like that. It's a misdemeanor, so most of the time they will just cut down your plants. You know, if there's money, maybe they'll they'll take that. Um, they'll detain you and write you a ticket and say, all right, come to court. You know, in a couple months. And so that threat is so much more minimal than what it was before that I think it's allowing the black market or the illicit market to keep growing, um, which in turn is now harming the legal market because as a consumer, um, I mean, I'm an educated consumer, so I know where the legal spots are, but most people don't. And you walk around L.A., I mean, there's you know, a couple, you know, hundreds, I mean, maybe, hundreds. maybe even a thousand um, stores out there. There's only 182, correct legal, me if I'm wrong, 182 yeah. legal mm-hmm. stores. Um, which you can go on the DCR's website and find out which ones those are. But most consumers are just driving along and they see a shop and they're like, if there's a shop open and apparent, like why it must be legal. Like how could a cop not drive by that and not know that it's not illegal? But the thing is for a cop to go in there and do anything, they got to get probable cause. They have to, you know, get collect evidence, watch these people. And that takes funds. That takes time, effort. They have to then, you know, potentially raid the space, which also takes time, effort and money. And then arrest the place, which now brings effort and you know liability to the courts that they have to deal with and at the end of the day maybe they get a misdemeanor maybe that person gets some probation and community service so you know my thought is that it's just not always worth the juice isn't worth the squeeze at this point i think it's also the case that when it comes to government and i've worked in various governmental offices that it's just a lot of times it's decided it's determined to be easier to, to enforce uh regulations on those who are in the system than those who aren't. So the odd thing is when you have folks who have decided to play by the rules, uh, they face that enforcement issue where, again, their competition doesn't, their illegal competition. Mm -hmm. But it's in all ways or in many ways an unfair, uh, unlevel playing ground uh, where, uh, where those who are in the system are paying the taxes are going are really many of them are quite scrupulous most or maybe all are very scrupulous and really by the letter by by the book by uh, going the extra mile in terms of of, deter, of being able to uh, get as much credibility uh, honestly and honorably as possible when it comes to the or the uh, pesticide-free aspects, mm-hmm. the, the uh, knowing that they can sell you, tell you exactly what you're buying if you're a consumer. And when they do all those things and play by the rules, and yet they are at a severe disadvantage financially because of all kinds of, uh, of advantages those have who are allowed to, to not play by the rules, it's, mm-hmm. it's just a weird, tricky circumstance. I do want, I think, I do want to ask you uh, about the... I mean, often we hear the term Wild West to describe this new industry. Uh, It still is a new industry in terms of legality. Putting aside the issue of legality, it's an ancient industry, I guess. But uh, it's a new industry in terms of its legal status, which is still sometimes an edgy question when it comes to what are the feds thinking, what is this attorney general versus that attorney general thinking, how are the different jurisdictions ruling and looking at things. Um, But... You're, one of the key things you do, as I understand it, is to help all kinds of different people uh, who have different levels and types of experiences come at this. So it may be the folks who have been doing this for years, sometimes before things became legal, mm-hmm. to those who are uh, looking at this as, as a possible unique and intriguing venture area to, to, to move into, 
to giant corporations that clearly in this day and age are looking at uh, this as being a wide open sphere. And I assume you, you both, I don't know if you duck and dodge all the incoming, but that you know how to handle these things and that you counsel all sorts of diverse people and, and entities and bring them together sure. and, and package, packages for particular opportunities that you find out about that you uh, bring to their attention. Is that all basically part of the, the uh, business you, you do? Yeah, I mean, you know, nobody can tackle this industry on their own. I mean, even if you're just a sole grower that has saved up millions of dollars and you want to do it all on your own, you still need lawyers to help accountants. You need, you know, you can't, it takes a village. Um, and then you grow it and you have your own facility, you still got to distribute it. And then from the distribution, you got to have access to retails. Um, you still got to be able to market it. So, you know, the old adage of, you know, the, I think the old way of this industry was, you know, the people on the hill. And, you know, I guess the, the growers listening to this will understand what I'm talking about. You know, the people in Humboldt and Mendocino who grew under the shade of darkness and, you know, couldn't inform anybody about where they were, what they were doing. Um, because if they did, they potentially could get raided or they could get robbed and, you know, created a whole bunch of issues. And so now you're telling these same people to come out in the open and tell people your, your, your SOPs and your intellectual property. Um, it, it creates a unique issue. And I think the first step for a lot of them is coming to me because, or any lawyer in general is because they like, how do I get licensed? Like, where do I go from that point? And the person that typically knows the best is a lawyer. Um, you know, I've seen it a hundred times where people go to consultants and nothing against consultants, but they aren't held to the same standards, ethical standards of an attorney where, you know, we are authorized by law to explain to you the law, whereas a consultant will charge you 50 grand. And if you don't get your license because of what they told you, it's like, hey, sorry, we were only providing advisory opinions. So as much as this is in a way, a plug for myself is like the first step is contact a lawyer or somebody who is very knowledgeable in compliance. You're also um, part of an effort called PGP, correct? And could you maybe tell yeah. us about that? Yeah. So I'm in a company called Primary Growth Partners. Um, this started from just general networking, you know, conversing with other people interested in this industry. One of them is uh, Pato Fuentes, who owns a company called Gel Communications. He does branding marketing for Procter Gamble, uh, you know, Coca-Cola, packaging design, all of that. Obviously, this industry needs packaging and design because that's you know your first chance at showing who you are to a consumer, right? It's like consumer comes to the retail spot, they're looking at all these different products, and as a new consumer, like how do you know which one to go? A lot of times, packaging is you know it's like when you meet someone, right? The first couple seconds, you understand if you like them or not based on their their dress, their appearance, their talk. I mean, that's your first chance to uh, you know convey yourself to the consumer. So that's Pato Fuentes. Uh, Michael Epstein is a brand strategist. He's He created a brand called 1-800-DENTIST, um, which is one of the top 1,000 brands in the country, which is pretty impressive to get on that list. Um, and just having a conversation about the issues that I've seen in the industry. And the biggest issue that I saw was that we have all these producers who have been growing and manufacturing for so long and doing their thing. Now they're required to do 20 other things. Now they have to be compliant. They have to track and trace. They have to um, you know, do very detailed accounting and trying to structure their businesses in a way that helps them with 280E, which is a huge tax issue on the federal level. Um, and so now they're spreading themselves thin to the detriment of 
their product and thus the consumer because now you know they, they have so many other things to worry about. And so our goal um, is to provide ancillary services to these businesses so that they can then um, keep doing what they're good at doing, which is growing and manufacturing. And those services are PR, communications, marketing, branding, uh, legal compliance, which is myself, um, and outsource finance. And the reason why these things are important is because, you know, my dad always says he's also, also in the industry, which could be a, 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 another interesting story to talk about. Um, but he always says, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And it's like, mm-hmm. so for him, you know, there are things that he doesn't know that he comes to me and to talk about, there's things that, you know, you, you just don't know. And so for a lot of these people, how do you hire a CFO? You know, you've been growing weed in your garage for years and years. Um, you know, to be honest, I don't know how to hire a CFO. I don't know what that position entails. If you were sitting in front of me saying you were a, a prospective CFO and you just start listing off words, I mean, that sounds good to me. All right, you're hired. A um, CFO being chief financial chief officer. Chief financial yeah. officer, yes, correct, yes. Um, and so there's certain aspects of that that you have to hire for. And it's like as in this cannabis industry, because you don't know, there are a lot of – I'd hate to say it, charlatans. You know, there are people out there mm-hmm. that recognize the value of this business that want to come in and exploit uh, the people who have been here for so long. And that's not to say that that's everyone, but it is to say that you must be careful with who you're hiring. And so our point with PGP is that as part of our company is we're trying to grow and invest in you um, versus just trying to make a salary, a quick buck and, you know, leave. You mentioned 280E and uh, we probably are going to devote at least one future oh, episode. A couple episodes, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So we've had, we've, I have some accounts for you for that. Uh, that's great to know. Uh, we've already we've talked to a couple of the congressional offices that are very focused on this, and there are a number of efforts uh, legislatively that are underway that might, from one uh, angle or another, attempt to remedy some of the problems mm-hmm. associated with 280E. But for the listeners who may not know, some certainly do in the industry, what 280 and uh, elsewhere. But for those who don't know what 280E is, can you kind of give the nutshell yeah, yeah. version? Um, you know, to back out a little bit, taxes I break out, there's essentially three categories of taxes. You have city taxes, state taxes, and federal taxes. And when you're a cannabis business, you are taxed on every single one of them at a lot higher level. And so, you know, part of the application process and licensing process, you got to find a local authorization to operate so let's just take la for example if you wanted to start a business in la tax wise if you're a cultivator manufacturer you have to pay a two percent gross tax which means before you pay any bills all the income earned they're taking two percent off the top Um, distribution and testing lab is one percent retail it's ten percent for anything sold adult use five percent anything sold medicinally so if you imagine a supply chain within the city of LA, I'm a grower. I grow at 2% tax. I send it to a distributor. They're getting taxed 1%. I send it to the retailer. They're getting taxed at 10 or 5%. And then as the consumer, most of that is being passed down to me. And now I'm paying 60, 80 bucks an eighth. Or I could go across the street to the illicit market and buy this, what I think to be the same product for 20 bucks. Um, so that's just a little small issue in the space. And it's probably a big issue. Um, then you have state taxes. So now every person in this cannabis space has two levels of taxes. There's a cultivation tax, which is $9.25 for every ounce of flour grown, which breaks out to be like $148 for every pound. 
you have a tax of $2.75 for every ounce of trim grown and used. So like if you were selling biomass to a manufacturer, that's about $44, $45 a pound. Um, And then there's a fresh frozen tax, which is $1.29, which is where if you cut the plant off, right, when you're harvesting it and freeze it at the time, um, it's supposed to store more nutrients and terpenes um, for use in manufacturing. That's $1.29. So that cultivation tax is due to the distributor when the product is packaged and ready for final sale. Um, the distributor then sells that product or moves that product to a retailer. The retailer owes 15% excise tax on the wholesale cost of that plus 60%. I know I'm using a lot of numbers here that it's probably great. glossing over. It's you can go to, to the hear. CDTFA website. Yeah. They do a great job of explaining it. You can look at it. But just just to explain all the different things. So there's that excise tax of 15% on, the, on, on that that also goes to the distributor. And the distributor is actually the entity that collects all of the state taxes for everybody and gives it to the uh, to the state so that's a, you know if you want to be a distributor that you know handling cash or you're collecting all this cash and you don't have a bank to put it in you know now you're liable for all of that cash as well another issue we could talk about as well which is that it's very difficult for and dangerous. Uh, for for those mm-hmm. in the cannabis industry when the banks feel uncomfortable or that maybe it's impossible for them to handle money because the feds are at a certain level of of uncertainty at best sometimes about uh, about how to treat the uh, the industry so therefore dispensaries maybe just keep the cash in their own safe and hire 24-hour guard because they have no other way of doing it before you know, uh, holding it until the periodic payments to the of taxes come due it's a very cumbersome mm-hmm. and frankly oppressive system mm-hmm. that's all due to the ambivalence the ambiguity and the historical layover of prejudice about an industry that the, that the public wants mm-hmm. and that that has been uh, again treated with malevolence by many politically for decades, but that's gone away on the pub- part of the public's understanding, and mm-hmm. so we're stuck with a system that right now is just screwball and 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 uh, anachronistic and d- draconian in terms of its impact. I mean, I'm babbling, but I think that's basically true. It's just mm-hmm. a, a hardcore problem faced by anyone in the industry who's playing by the rules. Um, you uh, you mentioned oh PGP. I do want to ask. Uh, oh, can we finish the taxes? Oh, sure. Yeah. So we're, yeah, we're not even done yet. Wait, we're not I, even I do want to ask taxes. one quick question There's about more. the taxes, which is: yeah. Do these you're mentioning? Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but a dollar twenty-seven for whatever. And this, <laughs> yeah. is it, do people just pull these things out of a hat? The regulator. I mean, how do they come up with the different <laughs> numbers per everything? It's Honestly, like, I've never looked up as to why they why they picked okay. it or or where they got it. I mean, there is law going through trying to be passed by the regulators to remove the cultivation tax, so you would not have to pay the 925 per ounce or the, the 275 per ounce and it would reduce the excise tax from 15 to 11 in a way for I believe they want to hold it off for like three or four years to let the industry grow and not be so taxed to compete with the illicit right. market right and, now. And we do want to I do, I do want to let you finish but I do want to say that you know at least many of us surely certainly there are those in the industry who maybe have spent 40 years as growers in whatever county where you know, things were done under cover of night, and they maybe are not thrilled by the whole premise of taxes. But I think many of us think that there's a, a great value to uh, tax dollars that are well spent, that, that serve the public. Uh, it's really not a question of is there a tax? It's a question of is it fairly and logically and rationally and justly and beneficially uh, determined, applied, and and utilized as, as part of our society, or is it something that's just 
uh, out there that's harmful in many different ways. And I think, uh, you know, it's in, it's in everyone's best interest to, to try to figure out how to make this something that it's not destructive to business interests, mm-hmm. that's productive for the consumer, and that's beneficial for society. Yeah, it, you know, it, it kind of brings the adage of PGP of, you know, our saying is no marijuana markups and that we find that, you know, whether it's consultants, lawyers, accountants, they find out you're a cannabis business and they just charge you right. a little more. I mean, you took look at leaseholds. I mean, I've seen property in downtown. Properties. LA that is just horror that you would sell typically maybe 90 cents a square foot or $4 a square foot because it's cannabis. You know, they see cannabis and they want to add it on. And I feel like the cities have now done that is they look at cannabis and they see all these operators in the past who are driving Maseratis and just seem to have cash flowing out of their ears. And they saw the opportunity to tax them um, appropriately. And because it's as a business owner, you want to have that license, you know, you're willing to pay that. I mean, it's getting better. I mean, so Take fly back to 2017 we, when we were doing the first applications for all of this in Linwood, Adelanto's, California City, those ones. I mean, they were charging like 25 bucks a square foot, crazy gross gross amount taxes. Um, and since now capitalism is kind of coming into play where all these cities are now competing for their business and now cities are getting lower and lower. Um, some cities have zero tax or places like Arcata. Um, I know there's a few other ones, but they're, they're getting lower and getting better as the cities are realizing that we cannot tax these people out of business um, and just let the illicit market grow. So it's, it's a work in progress. Now we have 280E, which is the federal tax code. So even though cannabis is a Schedule One drug, and if they catch it on you, they'll throw you in prison for some time, they, they're willing to take your tax money. Um, and basically what that says is you can only deduct cost of goods sold. And so for a producer, it's typically what I've seen about 70 to 80% of your costs. It's things that actually touch the plant. So your nutrients, your water, your prorated rent, your master growers, um, you know, your lights, but it doesn't include lawyers, accountants, uh, general business expenses, marketing. Um, and as you go down the supply chain to distributors and retailers, your only cost of goods sold is what you buy the product for. So you can't deduct rent. You can't deduct your licensing fees. You can't or, deduct or employees, employees, yeah. nothing. I mean, so you're, you're really limited. Your, your bottom line is really crushed. And then if you think on top of all the other taxes we just discussed of the state taxes and the city taxes, it's just a, it's a tough world out there, especially while you're competing with this illicit market that's only growing. Um, so so, you know, that that's an interesting play with the federal government and that they're willing to take your money but not give you the ability to operate as a regular business. And, you know, by just filing that tax, that 280E tax, it's you're just opening yourself up to more audits, which means they come in there and, you know, there was a, a new tax case uh, that Harborside just had to go through and they try to make uh, some less than conservative deductions. And the tax court was like, nah, you can't deduct any of this. You're a cannabis business. I think they had to end up paying back, you know, a couple million dollars. So having a good accountant, I mean, is, is huge because you will go through an audit um, when you file a 280E. It's just, it's just going to happen so but we're, again we're talking about something that seems to be uh, uh seems to have an unfair impact on this particular industry sure. yeah. versus others and that there are those and there are those in congress and elsewhere but certainly there are offices there are members of congress uh really focused on trying to uh ensure a more just fair and and, and appropriate way of doing this which means addressing 280E either indirectly or head-on. There are various things going on in Congress now. Mm-hmm. Um, unclear how quickly anything will happen. Uh, unclear at this moment, last I heard, um, things can happen quickly. Uh, obviously, political uh, life in D.C. and across the nation is very bizarre right now. 
uh, for reasons having nothing to do with cannabis. Maybe canna- cannabis could correct that. Um, <laughs> but that's, a, that's another story. But I, but I do uh, urge listeners uh, to keep checking out this podcast because we will definitely have uh, some future episodes uh, focusing specifically on 280E. And I believe it's fair to say, well, our, my, our hope, our earnest hope based on conversations is that some key, some some very relevant legislators uh, will be participating uh, in those podcast episodes because they they want people to understand that this is not something that they're uh, unawares of and that they do believe it should be corrected. And of course, you also have the strangeness of, of DC, where of federal life, where sometimes. Uh, who's aware of something, who isn't. Uh, it's not always on party lines. Uh, certainly there are some key Republicans who are now uh, or retired former uh, legislators and, and political figures who are are now in the industry. Uh, but also uh, it may just depend on what product their state is growing or their locality is growing or what they're doing that could change their view on things. So, so it is in flux, but it is a, a major challenge to anyone in the industry or many in the in- industry. And so, Chris, I thank you for that uh, mm-hmm. uh, enlightening uh, explanation you gave. And again, listeners, do please keep track of us as we will feature this topic in future episodes. But back to the podcast for now. I was just thinking about what the, you know, people who are, you know, pro-cannabis and want it in their city or, you know, want the the state to take a harsher um, stand on eliminating some of these taxes, that are there certain legislators that they should call their representatives, they should send letters, they should get on the phone, they should say, look, you know, this is something that we want in our community. Should they go to council meetings if they don't have uh, a legalized, you know, cannabis in their city and, you know, just start doing it. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, if you, you know, like Santa Clarita, I mean, I, I, I was born and raised there. So I know they're kind of this cannabis desert um, because the only way to get legal cannabis is if you drive up into the valley. And so you have this whole city of people that eh, there are a fair amount of them that you know enjoy weed that, you know, now they have to drive uptown that are now putting their tax dollars in another city. Um, but the thing about city council is they are a public servant and they listen to who comes to these meetings. And I've been to a bunch of these meetings and a lot of people just don't come or don't even realize right. they're there. So even and if you look at the city's agenda on that Tuesday when they have it, and it, nothing's about their cannabis, there's always an open forum for you to sure. go and lay your, you know, l- explain what you're what you're looking and, for, what you want, and come up with a good argument and you know uh, communicate it well. But I think getting you and all your friends and everyone you can to just show up and constantly be there, it, it'll make a change. And uh, they could also specify, you know, say, "Look, I'm a voter." Mm-hmm. I'm a voter in this city, if they are a voter in that city, and saying, like, this means something to me, and I will, this is how I'm going to vote. Mm-hmm. Well, because, you know? and we're not even talking <laughs> about medical, which is, a, I know, in many ways, a, sort of a different category, but. It's a safer argument. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's, um, what we're talking about is forcing people to drive long distances sometimes. And, right. and so you want to talk about traffic, you want to talk about pollution. I mean, you want to talk about inconvenience, Uh, and you want to talk about alcohol and and tax base, uh, where the taxes may be going, and or promoting just the uh, people just deciding we'll just do the illegal stuff that's convenient at that point. Mm -hmm. Uh, At this point, how many what how many cities in California or what's the silent partner here? Silent participant is do do you happen to know? I think there's eight seventy five percent. 
non seventy five percent of California is, mm-hmm. is not regulated. So what that really means is that, um, of course, there may end up being a tidal wave happening because sometimes things reach the point as as uh, more and more jurisdictions embrace uh, legal cannabis, especially if it's allowed to, if it's given more of a, a chance to flourish mm-hmm. publicly, safely, in accord with the laws, uh, then you'll see more and more cities go this route because they need money, among other things. Uh, they can use money, uh, revenues, and uh, a lot. Of, in a lot of cases, it may be if there's a five-member city council, it may be, well, two are for, two are against, and one sort of thinking about it. So it really is a question, and it can also, also go on a ballot. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a question. Which is what happened in Pasadena. Right. Which and, is, well, and, they're, they're, and Malibu. Malibu too. Uh, yeah, I well, well, Pasadena. That. Pasadena was interesting because they were trying. The, the voters were putting together a referendum to put on the ballot, and they were going to issue a bunch of licenses because that's what the people wanted. And the city council was like, "Whoa, like we do not want to give this many licenses. We better just regulate it now." And then they, you know, they created a system where they give out. They're giving out like six retail, a handful or of cultivation. Even less. I think like yeah, it might three. even be less. I think it's yeah. one per council district, yeah. and two of the council districts don't like want it. don't have any uh, zones that are <laughs> applicable for it. So um, that's that's one way to get you know the fire under yeah. the, the council's uh, behinds. And hopefully, when they dip their toes in uh, or dive in, whichever it is, they do it sensibly because mm-hmm. again, you want things to work. The more these things work uh, in a, a visionary but also well managed manner the more it, it boosts the entire industry and serves the public well. Uh, you know, the, what we mentioned in passing at the, earlier, which will be heard unless I edit it out, because I was babbling, was uh, that Renee here is an applicant on the uh, – I'm not trying to plug it, but this is a good example. The, the cannabis, cannabis cafe that's just gotten its business uh, – uh, license in West Hollywood, and there was an exhaustive RFP request for proposals. I guess that's the type of process it was, and there were hundreds of applicants. There was over 300 applicants and a, a weeded, a weeded, weighted application. <laughs> that wasn't meant to be a pun. Um, uh, but in the category we were, there were over 80. Oh, yeah. So and you, one and of you the had- first in all, all of the state. I mean, to have a consumption lounge like that. Yeah. And, and it you, is, you it have, is the first in the country and you have names to actually like, have cafe with okay. food, yeah. And you have names like Wolfgang Puck on some of these uh, submissions. Mm-hmm. and, and uh, Yeah, he in came West in 40. Hollywood. We came in first. <laughs> well, how, how much was the charge to, to do the application? Like 10 grand. 10 grand. So, yeah, yeah hundreds, hundreds of applications. They, 10 the city grand. made they, a they lot of in. money. Yeah, they yeah. raked it in. So, and then, of course, yeah. and we're not trying to, really, I'm not trying to, discuss that business other than to make a single point but you can do something that's visionary that's in accord with city new city laws and and other rules but then you still have to think about state laws which can change and federal it is Mm -hmm. and this is where uh chris for example is a tremendous is of tremendous assistance and i don't believe you worked on that particular project but there are many uh all kinds of opportunities what does Shakespeare say? Dreamt or undreamt of? I don't even know. My, I don't know my Shakespeare. But there are things which, if they're not here today, they're going to be here tomorrow as opportunities. And something like the West Hollywood uh, Consumption Cafe, uh, which is getting a lot of attention in the news media in the last couple of days, certainly since the permit was granted, um, 
it sets it creates a paradigm so that other legislators and other folks in other uh, communities will be saying we'd like something like that mm-hmm. uh, where again i didn't mean to discuss it but just to, just to be clear that's a place where people can go to smoke to 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 indulge in legally and safely consume consume mm-hmm. thank you uh, in a legal safe manner where they're not intruding on or not an issue for other people outside of that space. And it's in many ways, uh, and it certainly was desired by the community and is desired at large. And, um, and, and it is the kind of thing, and there are many other examples, all kinds, zillions in the industry of people talking about potential ideas and efforts and maybe hearing about one and saying, can we do it here and there? And in each instance, the legal... Uh, framework has to be uh, achieved, mm-hmm. and that's uh, what you do, of course. Yeah, and honestly, to start off, I mean, you don't need to go for go to a lawyer. I mean, you know, the, the thing that I do when someone comes and says, "Hey, I want to get a license in this city," I Google the city and I go into their city database and Google cannabis, and it'll pop up right there. If they allow it, they don't allow it. What their process is, the regulations. And you just read it. And I know a lot of people find it boring or reading, but I mean, you play any game, let's play, you play Monopoly. The people that win are the people that understand the rules because they're pulling out, you know, oh, I could put on four, ho- four houses and create a hotel. You know, no, understanding the rules gets you a better chance at succeeding what you want to do. And so you don't necessarily need a lawyer, you just need to work hard. Uh, I mean, I've, I've dealt with clients that have gotten licenses on their own. Um, I mean, it's not a simple process, but it can be done on your own without, you know, paying lawyers or consultants to be done. Um, but obviously, if you have help, if you need help and you have questions, I mean, coming to someone that understands a space that's done it a hundred times um, can be helpful. I assume that, that some of your clients and potential clients are maybe suspicious of a new system. Maybe they've been doing it for years on their own terms, more or less aware of of legal uh, constructs, but maybe trying to avoid that space as much as possible, uh, and are now looking at this again with that there are changes, and that you also have folks who are looking at this as a new opportunity in a field that they basically haven't uh, engaged in at all, excepting maybe as uh, consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so how does it differ, if at all, for you when you're perhaps talking to people who? have been grounded in the basics of the industry, maybe have been growing for decades. And then the person, if I can be, if I can, I don't mean to caricature anyone, but Mm -hmm. someone who's a, who's a studio exec and has money to invest in and thinks, Hey, this would kind of be interesting. And they come to you. To what extent is the dialogue different? To to what extent do you put those people together conceivably? Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, I think you do need a little bit of both um, for ease of this conversation. You know, all my clients are different. They come from a wide variety of backgrounds, but for ease of this conversation, I'll throw them into kind of these two categories of one, what I would call like a trapper, people who have been producing uh, for, you know, while it was a felony who kind of paved the way for everyone. And then you have these quote unquote white collar workers, the studio execs, the people coming from Universal and Disney wanting to come in. And they both have a unique skill set that they're bringing into the space that you really need a combination of both because the white collar worker doesn't know how to grow. I mean, you know, it's only been legal for two years and some of the best growers out there have been growing for much longer and growing is a very tricky thing, whether it's indoor, outdoor, um, there's different nutrient lines. I mean, now it has to be pesticide free. And so if you've only been growing for two years, 
you know, you don't know how to handle certain issues. You know, if there's pesticide mold, what do you do? You know, so um, you need somebody that knows how to grow the manufacturer that knows the space that has the connections too. because just because you come in here and you have a license. Well, where do I go out and get distillate to fill up my vape pens? Where do I go out and find biomass? Um, where, you know, where do I have these connections? And on the producer side is like they're great at growing weed, at manufacturing the product, but maybe you know, tracking and tracing and accounting for everything that you do isn't their skill set or something that they want to do. And so it helps to have that knowledge of business uh, from the white collar side to come in and kind of educate each other and bring them together. And so I try to do that as best I can. Part of it is understanding who the clientele is because not everybody works together, right? Um, you can't, you know, you can't just put two people together and hope it works out. Um, I, I use the the metaphor of Jimmy Iovine. I don't know if you guys have seen the the documentary, The Defiant Ones. Um, Jimmy Iovine is an old school music producer that found like Dr. Dre and Eminem. And he was big on just like putting people together and saying, you would work really well with this person. And through that, he's produced some of the best music out there. Um, and so I try to do that as like, try to understand who that person is and put them up with somebody else who, you know, they, they can empathize with each other and work well together. Um, my background, I think kind of helps with that. So since pretty much since I was 18, I've had friends that have been growing weed in the medical market. Um, so I've helped them trim. I've sat there hours and hours trimming weed. So I know what that horrible pain feels like. Um, if anyone who's, who's done that. Um, and so where all my other friends enjoyed, the growing aspect and the sleepless nights of not knowing when you could get raided or robbed or anything. I enjoyed reading. So I just kind of went to school and when I graduated, just worked out to where I could help my friends, you know, get their licenses and become legal and do with that. And, you know, my dad was an exec at universal studios. He was the VP of finance and quality over there. And when I started working here, he was like, Chris, you went to law school, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to become a lawyer. And now you're just out there like slanging weed law. And I was like, dad, I'm telling you, like, this is the new industry. This is what's growing up. And about a year ago, I finally convinced him. And now he was the COO of a company called Case Manufacturing, which produces uh, distillate, Jaden's juice products. Um, and now he's just working in the industry, providing business plans and consulting services um, for cannabis companies and so it's interesting to have that dynamic with my father as well to be able to you know communicate on that high level business uh business discussions well i don't want to draw too direct a a comparison or parallel but the motion picture industry you go back a century and it was kind of fleeing hightailing maybe a little bit more New Jersey and other places because of copyright laws and, and, and other probably tax laws too. And they came here for the weather, but they also came here to get away from regulations and strictures and enforcement. And you had uh, the, the early 20th century, you had folks entering the business who had been doing other things, uh, garment industry or five and dime places or whatever. And they found a way to come into the business uh, that it was evolving and, dis- and starting up at that moment in time, not knowing where it would go. You look at the great moguls, and they have uh, mostly or completely, of that era at least, they had backgrounds that were other things. And they, and mm-hmm. it was at a time when uh, you know, it was probably rel- fairly scandalous in a lot of circles for people to be associated with uh, motion pictures or even you know, theater or mm-hmm. circuses and vaudeville and burlesque. Uh, and maybe they tried to uh, prettify it by getting a star from Broadway to show up in a silent film or whatever, and maybe they succeeded. But there was that level of uh, 
of uh, a negative mystique, perhaps, but also of opportunity and of rules and laws that were in flux until they got better defined, uh, better for better and worse sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's kind of interesting to think of your father uh, in the staid and, and, and uh, uh, you know, the, the, the holy of, holiest of holies in our area, mm-hmm. industry of, of motion pictures at the studio level, uh, looking, I don't want to say down initially, but looking askance at what you did when, again, you go back 100 years mm-hmm. and it would have been the kid wanting to do be in the movie industry who would have been looked at with such scorn and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. skepticism. Um, but as long as you've brought your, your family and family name into the mix, uh, I, I want to ask you, and I actually know the answer because I asked this obnoxious question of you, I guess, <laughs> la- yesterday, last night over the phone, the Hickok name. Um, and I asked if you, with all, all due apology, I asked uh, if you had any familial connection to the Wild Bill Hickok of Deadwood and Western lore fame. I do. I do, yes. Um, yeah, he, he. it's funny. I actually have a picture in my office, and all my friends think I look like him. I don't know if I – I mean, I got the long hair. I don't necessarily have the mustache, but, um, I, you know, there, there are some parallels, I think, in that. I mean, he was kind of policing the Wild West, and I'm not policing, but I am trying to help, you know, my clients uh, navigate through this Wild West territory. Um, do you uh, and you and when you when you go into a restaurant, you sit with your back to the wall? Oh yeah, all the time, <laughs> all the time. It, it's, anywhere I go, not even just restaurants. I don't know why. It's but in it's your a, DNA. Yeah. <laughs> so when you folks out there uh, come to have a nice lunch meeting with Chris, understand <laughs> that you will not have the chair. With the back to the wall, but that's also something that's good Don't for even you try. because yeah. Yeah. Chris, you want to sit next Chris, to Chris's you. eyes and ears are wide open. He picks up on stuff, mm-hmm. and and that's just to the benefit of anyone who's in the industry. Uh, is there any other? I, I guess I'd like to ask you one one quick question, a quick maybe. I'm wondering if well, two quick questions. One is, are there any specific major? remedies solutions or related challenges with or without the remedies that you see as being an issue that should or or something that should be addressed at the city of la level specifically or federal including banking Uh, i I mean la one i mean it's it's tough because i have a lot of clients in la i mean my people listening might not understand what phase two is but it was an application process people had to apply back in august where once they applied they had to give 10 grand to the city for each and every activity that they applied for most people applied for three activities that's 30 grand to the city the three activities being cultivation distribution manufacturing um so they paid all this money, and you know, part of their application is that they're what's considered a social equity applicant. With, without getting too much into that, is typically someone who's low income, prior cannabis conviction, people who have been you know disproportionately harmed by by the harsh drug laws. Certain um, zip codes, yeah, zi- di- mm-hmm. yeah, the zip codes where if you lived mm-hmm. in those for five or ten years, you could you could qualify as social equity. And it's ad- advantageous. It's not disadvantageous. Correct. And it is corrective. It, it, it gives you access to to, to get a license. Um, and the issue I have with it is that you meet these qualifications. They want to help you, and you gave them ten to thirty thousand dollars. 
and they don't you don't hear anything from the city until about December when they're like, hey, here's this temporary authorization so you can try and get a state license before they close the temporary window. Um, and then even then, it was a few months later until they started actually inspecting you, giving you authorization, which still takes a lot of time. I mean, I have clients that are still it's almost it's almost a year, and you know, in a couple of days, it's been a full year, and people still cannot operate. And and, and to be clear, like any business, putting aside cannabis. Uh, considerations and that that's the specific nature of this industry as time passes there are all kinds of other commitments expenses oh, real yeah. estate oh, yeah. do you do what, what do you right, say yeah. it's very hard to make any decision it's painful and sometimes impossible or incredibly punishing to make decisions when you don't know your status for sure and there's no definite timeline of when the city will come out with certain things i mean they, there's a new phase coming up that's supposed to start september 3rd i honestly don't think it's going to happen i mean we just submitted what's called phase one, which was these pre-ICOs, all these people who had priority to apply way back in January of 18, just had to submit annual applications, which is, you know, potentially hundreds of pages of SOPs and, you know, documents um, that the city has to review and approve. And along with this, they still have to approve the phase twos. And then the phase, I mean, without getting too much into it, I think they they've bitten off more than they can chew and this it sounds like the city council is not providing them with enough help like they're very sh- seems to be they're very short staffed i mean i'm on a first name basis with the people i call on the dcr's uh you know hotline um the I've dcr talked, meaning the, the department of cannabis regulation the 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 group city in LA, la that that reviews all these applications so i think right now they only have 12 or 13 employees to run the weed capital of the world i mean in yeah. phase two there was 540 applications uh, phase one there was you know 182 so i mean there's close to a thousand applicants all trying to do something in la for 12 people to handle um it's it's a slow process and not it's not it's not me harping on la i, I think it's it's tough for them because it's like they want to do this right you know they're trying to regulate the biggest cannabis industry in all of the world uh with 12 people and so i kind of see both sides i mean i understand the frustration from the clients of hey i paid all this money and i need to operate because the industry is moving forward i mean people are building their brands they're tying themselves to consumers um and every day you're not in the space is another day that you're just missing out on consumers um but i also understand the city's spot of we're trying to regulate this massive system where there's this huge illicit market and we want to make sure the people that are trying to get licensed are the people that deserve it um so it's not necessarily me criticizing the city it's just a tough process for them to have to go through the the missing part of the puzzle to some extent is if you i think is the regulating and enforcement regarding illegal operations Mm -hmm. because the more you do that the more space there is for well, I don't even know about fines or whatever, but the more space there is for everything to flourish in a successful way, without the the all the weird overlap, the confusing, problematic overlap that really uh, baffles and and and, and uh, well, it, it keeps the public unaware of really how to how to understand the the, the mm-hmm. issue and government too. Um, so. Hopefully, that part of the of the puzzle happens uh, increasingly effectively. And I know you have there are city officials and the city attorney's office and whatever. Where the the question becomes, how do they staff up and and what and, mm-hmm. and policies and 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 uh, the focus of any office? Uh, those things are are in flux always, and and additionally are are things that get influenced by public input. 
So, but, so know, I was going to say, and, and you're right in that it's the DCR Department of Cannabis Regulation is just one aspect of the city that is trying to grow. I mean, you have DWP Department of Water and Power that is trying to get all these all, way more electricity to all these warehouses than ever before. You have planning departments that need to approve all these plans. You have fire department, which only has a handful of people going out checking these. I mean, it's it's a massive undertaking. And um, but at the same time, it's, you know, this the people paid their money and they're, you know, they just yeah. want to be operational. So I think there's a happy medium of maybe just giving temporary authorization mm-hmm. to operate and we'll come to you as soon as we can. And if obviously if there's issues, we'll shut you down or make you stop for some time. But I, I think they could have given the green light a little quicker than they did. Um, and, yeah. and there are all kinds of, of issues that are not unimportant though. How you calculate them into the, the overall picture uh, is a, another matter entirely. For example, if you have legal cannabis, does that uh, diminish the opioid, opioid crisis and addiction? If people have the alternative, that's that frankly is uh, you know is not is not the severe public health and public safety hazard and threat on a devastating level that opioid uh, abuse and addiction has clearly become in in this uh, country. Mm -hmm. And that, therefore, can uh, be an issue for police as well and their policies, but it's also something that's driven by legal understandings and and by political guidance from the electeds. So there's a whole host of of things that can be discussed, but the bottom line also, and maybe in particular, is just to uh, somehow take widespread and diverse uh, departments and offices and jurisdictions, uh, including on the federal level and state and and local level and county, um, and to somehow get them so that it's understandable and not just a Kafkaesque maze of of bizarre walls that those who are actually trying to do things in good faith are the ones most likely to encounter. Mm -hmm. But lucky for them, at least there is the friendly uh, face, ear, voice of... Our special guest, Chris Hickok. And so, Chris, in, in closing, unless you have anything else or anyone else, including our mm-hmm. silent partner over here, Susan O'Leary, mm-hmm. if there's anything anyone else wants to volunteer, I would just ask what I perhaps should have peppered this conversation with, which is, is there any kind of contact information or website that people should go to, whether it's regarding PGP or yourself, that you feel comfortable giving out on a podcast? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can always you know, call into our firm, you know, Shevin Law Group. Uh, our phone number is 818-784-2700. Ask for Chris. You know, I'm happy to talk with you 15, 20 minutes, just generalities, like where you need to go, where to look at, you know, just what you're interested in. I mean, uh, you know, it doesn't take much for me to kind of at least lead you down the path to figure out what your next steps are. Um, if you want to just follow me on Instagram, it's alien at law. Um, it's pretty much just me posting all the free weed that I get. So uh, <laughs> if you're interested in that, you're welcome to, you're welcome to follow me there. And it is... Chris, C-H-R-I-S. I say my name being Newman, which is N-E-U-M-A-N. Uh, a life of spent of, of saying certain things over and over again. Um, so on that note, is there a PGP website? Uh, yeah, I believe it's wearepgp.com. It's still in the process of, of going up there, but it's it looks pretty. <laughs> <laughs> well... Um, Okay, so I hope this has been uh, informative and, and fun. For me, it has been. Uh, and uh, Chris Hickok, Renee Nahum, uh, myself, uh, Susan over here, have, uh, all of you, thank you. And, and I want to say to the audience, uh, 
Well, this is hi, y'all, saying bye, y'all. Bye, Take y'all. Care. Bye, y'all. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. And we're, we're, this is going to be a, a series of, uh, hopefully an ongoing series of uh, podcast episodes about uh, cannabis and, and related issues and dynamics. Uh, we've, we hope everyone will feel free to contact us with questions and ideas, including possible guests. And I will probably try to remember to... Uh, to look and find the email address to give to to uh, include uh, later on because I can't remember it right now. Me with my feeble memory. <laughs> Goodbye. Hi y'all. Bye y'all. If I was high, the world would blow. I'd be happy everywhere I go. I'd be smiling. I'd never frown Because I'd rather be up and down A little man Oh, feeling fine Oh, splendor It calms my mind And with my friends Oh, got around Because I'd rather be up and down Get together and smoke a phone. You whisper, baby, 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 come and take me home. We ride away and go to town because I'd rather be And go!